Our scripture lesson today, as many of them in this uh, Lenten period have been, are from the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter 4, starting at verse 5 through 21, and then I will skip to 28 and 29, and then I'll skip to verse 39. So you've got all that, right? (laughs) So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flock drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And then many Samaritans from that city believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I have ever done. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we gather on this day, we do ask that you will send a fresh breath of spirit to give us freedom and to give us hope. And that this story might speak to us in all the places of hope and even the places of fear in our lives. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One of my favorite contemporary American poets is Stephen Dunn, who passed away last year in Frostburg, Maryland, after teaching for many years at Stockton State University in New Jersey. His poetry is most often grounded in the ordinary lives of people, in their day-to-day concerns over work, family, finances. A poem that has stayed with me for many years is entitled, A Secret Life. I want to share parts of it with you today that are appropriate for our setting and which speak to the text from John. The secret life begins early, is kept alive by all that's unpopular in you, all that you know someone religious would object to. It becomes what you'd most protect if the government said you can protect one thing, all else is ours. When you write late at night, it's like a small fire in a clearing. It's what radiates and what can hurt if you get too close to it. It's why your silence is a kind of truth. Even when you speak to your best friend, the one who will never betray you, you always leave out one thing. A secret life is that important. Since 1947, over 20 artists have recorded a spiritual entitled, Jesus Met the Woman at the Well. It is based on a Samaritan woman in John's Gospel whom Jesus encounters after he turns water into wine at a wedding, after he drives money changers out of the temple, and after he has a nighttime conversation with an established leader of the Jewish community named Nicodemus, who interprets what Jesus is saying about following him as being like a second birth, while Jesus compares it to a birth from above. Probably the most familiar recording of this spiritual is by Mahalia Jackson, though other familiar artists like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and even Bob Dylan have recorded it. If you have any familiarity with African-American worship, you have probably encountered this song. Jesus met the woman at the well. Jesus met the woman at the well. Jesus met the woman at the well. And he told her everything she'd ever done. He said, woman, woman, where is your husband? Woman, woman, where is your husband? Woman, woman, where is your husband? I know everything you've ever done. She said, Jesus, Jesus, I ain't got no husband. Jesus, Jesus, I ain't got no husband. Jesus, Jesus, I ain't got no husband. And you don't know everything I've ever done. He said, woman, woman, you have five husbands. Woman, woman, you have five husbands. Woman, woman, you have five husbands. And the one you have now, he's not your own. She said, 
this man, this man, he must be a prophet. This man, this man, he must be a prophet. This man, this man, he must be a prophet. He told me everything I've ever done. Jesus met the woman at the well. Jesus met the woman at the well. Jesus met the woman at the well. And he told her everything she'd ever done. If you watch Mahalia Jackson on YouTube, or if you see this spiritual performed by any number of black choirs in churches large or small, you see the anguish on the faces of the women who sing these words be transformed into joy. When they sense that Jesus knows them and understands them and accepts them. Leading them to become in the Bible what the Samaritan woman became. The first person in the gospel of John to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. All because he told me everything I've ever done. Now, it is hardly surprising, given our human tendency to be drawn into scandal and our propensity of inventing, reinventing, telling, retelling, or even patenting the salacious, particularly if it involves women or girls. It's not surprising that this spiritual would focus on the one somewhat mysterious aspect of this woman's life. The five marriages she has had and the unmarried relationship in which she currently lives. Less important in our mind and therefore less memorable to us is the fact that she is Samaritan and Jesus is Jewish and that, the, that though the text says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, we overlook this racial divide in favor of what may be a marital irregularity or scandal. In addition, even though the text points out that it's forbidden for males to speak to females alone at a well in the middle of the day, we overlook, we overlook that aspect of human division through which this act of conversation breaks. Neither we nor the spiritual are alone in this tendency to focus on the potential for sexual scandal in this story. From day one, established biblical scholars and commentators focus more on the woman's personal history than any other matter in the text. Some even assume and write that she is a harlot. But the truth is, we cannot know fully the nature of the woman's life, of her marital history, of her moral actions from this story. Women did not control their marriage decisions. Divorce could only be initiated by men. It's possible that she was widowed several times. And by the law and custom of her day, if her husband died, she would have to marry the husband's brother and then again and then again solely for the purpose of bearing a child that would keep that family name going. We simply don't know 
the specific shape or form or perhaps most importantly reasons for her marital history. But we do know this from the text. Neither in the conversation nor at any later point in the story does Jesus call the Samaritan woman a sinner. Nor does Jesus say, as he does at other times in the text and in the Gospels, go and sin no more. Nor does he explicitly ask her to repent. Jesus simply talks to a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day while the two are alone, violating taboos, preventing Jews and Samaritans, men and women from talking. And he talks with her longer than he talks to his accusers, than he talks to members of his family, or with the exception of the Last Supper, than he ever talks with his disciples. He reveals that he knows everything about her life. Its joys and its sorrows, its burdens and its blessings, its hopes and its heartaches. He reveals that he knows things she may have done wrong. Things she may have gotten wrong. Things that may have just gone wrong. Or wrong and ugly things that may have been done to her. He told me everything I've ever done without condemning her. Now, rather than that knowledge being a threat to her, it sets her free, both to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and to share that belief with others. Whatever she has done in her secret life or whatever has been done to her, she experiences comfort, indeed liberation, to know that the Messiah knows. Her knowing that God knows is sufficient and it is beautiful. I think that many of us grow up and perhaps never outgrow an image of God being like Santa Claus, a white-haired, bearded man in the sky, more than likely in gray robes rather than in bright red robes, but one on whose lap we can sit once a year and come away with hope that our greatest desires, often material, will be met just around the corner. But along with this warm and inviting image of God as Santa, a part of the package reinforced regularly in and out of season by our parents and others with authority over us comes with the warning that this kindly figure is actually making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. To the extent that we sort of operate or have this more foreboding image of God, it can lead us to be uncomfortable around God, uncomfortable at the thought of God. It can lead us to be fearful of God. And it often leads us to just avoid or even reject 
to God altogether? If we think God does actually know everything we do or think, say, or feel? Because of who we are, or what we have done, or what has been done to us, this image of God can actually make us feel dirty, unclean, unacceptable to God, unqualified, unworthy to come into a sanctuary, to listen to an organ, to sing a hymn, to come to the table. It may also lead us to think, like the first man and woman in Genesis, that we can actually hide from God. We may devote considerable energy to keeping part of our lives secret, not only from ourselves and not only from people around us, but actually from God. This secret life we seek to construct can contain things we have done and for which we feel guilty. Or it may contain things that have been done to us about which we are angry with God for allowing to happen. Or which lead us to wonder if God really exists in the first place or was perhaps in abstentia when we needed God most. But I have a question that came to me in writing this. If we really think we have the power to keep things secret from God, is that a God that's really worth worshiping? Why bother? Why bother? The experience of the Samaritan woman at the well teaches us simply that Jesus Christ knows. That God knows. That the Holy Spirit knows. And our knowledge of that knowledge can, as it did for her, set us free to leave the jar sitting on the well. Or let it spill over into the dust. And run into the village and share that new found liberating news with whoever we want to share it with, with whenever we think it's right to share it, with whatever circumstances we think it is healthy and right for us to share. We no longer have to invest energy in trying to keep anything from God. And if we don't invest energy trying to keep anything from God, we're not likely to invest energy in trying to keep anything from ourselves, we might even become just a little more open about sharing it with someone we love, with someone we trust, with someone who may benefit from our sharing it. And when we do share it, we share it out of a confidence that the Holy One who is higher and greater and transcendent and magnificent over us all already knows. It is not news to God. God knows. Christ knows. The Holy Spirit knows. That's sort of 
all we need to know. Amen.